loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm welcoming Dr. Randall Bell. As an economist, Dr. Bell's consulted on more disasters on Earth than anyone in history and is widely considered the world's top authority in the field of post-traumatic thriving. His clients include the federal government, state governments, international tribunals, major corporations, and homeowners. Dr. Bell believes that the problem is not the problem. The problem is how we react to the problem. Often called the master of disaster, Dr. Bell squarely focused on authentic recovery and resilience. His research has been profiled on major television shows and featured in numerous magazines and the international media. Today, we'll be talking about his recent release, Post-Traumatic Thriving, The Art, Science, and Stories of Resilience. And you can find more about him at drbell.com. Welcome, Randall. Cheryl, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Very, very happy to have you. You, Your book uh, had a lot of things that that just resonated so deeply. Of course, everyone that ever comes on this show, which is about grief, loss, and transformation could have been in your book. So (laughs) I I was thinking of so many people as we, um, as I, as I read, uh, and also just such a treasure trove of information. So thank you for that. I think, I think anyone who read the book would get a full sense of, of kind of the overall arc of, of growing after loss. Well, I, I appreciate you saying that, Cheryl. I, I worked 10 years on it, so I'm glad it's, it's you know, it's, it's hopefully hitting the mark. <laughs> it's interesting that that's, uh, that that's true because, of course, one thing you say at the beginning is, uh, you know, something I say on, on almost every show, it's not a straight line, start by getting safe, accept that you're not there yet, you know, all those, so that you, that, that goes on with writing and publishing a book too, as I well know, having published a a novel, you know, it's not, it's not for most people a a snap, is it? Well, no, I, in fact, Cheryl, this, this book was, I've written a a couple books and um, this one was different because I wrote it from, from first kind of my academic professional, you know, observations and then long story short, I was going to climb Mount Kilimanjaro and I went in for a checkup and uh, my cardiologist said, you, you may need another heart surgery. I had a heart surgery when I was 11 and that opened a can of worms of unresolved trauma that I was experienced from my childhood trauma of being, having been born with a congenital heart defect. And uh, I had, uh, I, I dealt with all of that. I, I did uh, climb Kilimanjaro and, and summited but that whole experience woke me up that I'm in this game too. And I changed the whole, I had to go back and change the whole book and rewrite it with a tone of, Hey, we're in this together. I'm going through the same thing is I'm not talking down to anybody or trying to be professorial about it. And I think that hopefully that tone comes across now. 
It really does. And that matters to me because, uh, you know, in general, I very, I very much resonate with memoir because I like to learn through story. Mm -hmm. um, but your book had a similar quality of um, being willing to be vulnerable about your own experience and, it, you know, sort of a been there factor. Right. <laughs> and it makes us a lot more believable, I, I think, when we're willing to share, you know, what what our own struggles are and including in your case, it 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 makes me wonder um, whether perhaps that early experience of trauma even though maybe you didn't immediately connect it with why you were going to disaster sites and, you know, <laughs> doing all that. Do you see it as connected that maybe that early experience made you resonate with, with people's losses and difficulties and traumas? Uh, Cheryl, that's, that's a really brilliant question. I've done lots of media interviews and that's the first time I've been asked that. And I haven't thought of it that way. I, it could be. Uh, I'm gonna have to think that one over, but I think you might have you might have uh, uh, kind of struck the nail on the head there. It's it's uh, it's something that stands out to me a lot in the work I do. Uh, I'll give you a for instance. I've been I've done over the years uh, many workshops on the art of saying goodbye. So it would be I did the music part. Other people did art, etc. And uh, one of my co-presenters, the first time we met before we ever did it. Uh, the, the person who brought us together was saying, how did you come to do this work? She was a, at that point, a hospice social worker. And she said, I really don't know. There's no, you know, I can't really think of anything. <laughs> and then the next time we met, she said, I am out of my mind. I lost five friends in high school. I lost all my grandparents. You know, <laughs> she had had this series of early losses and traumas that she had never connected with the work she did. So that's that's why that question um, goes goes on my mind, stays on my mind with people. Mm -hmm. What brought us to do what we do? Yeah, that's profound. I think I might have to do a second edition and incorporate <laughs> <laughs> that. Well, that's a good start on our interview, I guess. <laughs> that's a brilliant observation. It really is. I. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, I, I I didn't really conscientiously get into the whole disaster research thing. I I I did it out of more kind of initially out of curiosity and just kind of have an adult ADD undiagnosed, but you know, just like it. I like I'm curious and I like exploring. But then I got the O.J. Simpson case, and that blew the doors off in terms of you know, the people behind the statistics, because before that, it was just number crunching. It was economics. Uh, uh. And then I met the people behind the statistics. And that's what really piqued my curiosity. I've, I've always felt since that day, very drawn to this kind of research. It, that's, that's very interesting to me, because in this period of COVID, we're a couple of years in here, almost, uh, I've noticed that a lot of people are saying, oh my God, such huge numbers, you know, all that kind of thing. But for me, it's always about, oh my God, so many traumatized, bruised, bleeding people, the, the grievers, right? <laughs> um, the, the people who've been, and of course, everyone's been impacted, uh, some differently than others, right? But I'm always thinking about the impact on human beings of these of these terrible circumstances, whatever they may be. 
racism, homophobia, you know, <laughs> whatever you want to say about kind of disasters in, in the world. Well, yeah, you're right. There's so, such a complex variety of these disasters. I, I actually, on the COVID thing, I got COVID last January and my family did too. And for them, it was like a two-day cold. But for me, it knocked me out for five months. And uh, I'm not trying to be dramatic, but it it I nearly, uh, you know, said goodbye to the world there. It was rough. Um, it's a and, dramatic uh, illness in that way, isn't it? Yeah. And it was you know, in my recovery, which took months, it was, it was so pathetic. I, 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 you know, some days my entire energy was spent on focusing on getting up and getting a glass of water. It was that bad. And, uh, I thought, you know, I need to read my book again. (laughs) 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 It really knocked me down good. You know, uh, one thing I noticed because I, I never put the book down because I'm working with people every day, right, who are going through these things. And then I interview people every week who are. And I was noticing at the beginning that the people who were really, really struggling weren't the people having the hardest things happen. They were the people who had always been able to sort of overcome and uh, make it come out right. And, you know, they were actually very empowered people in their lives, but they didn't necessarily know how to surrender when it was out of their control. And um, for me, that's just what I know how to do, right? <laughs> that's a that's a differentiating between what we can control and what we, we can't it is at the center of all of this, I think. So, um, you had to kind of remind yourself to surrender maybe, or remind yourself of all that you know. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's kind of embarrassing because I, I don't claim to be a high IQ person. I, I'm really, and I'm not, that's not a false modesty. That's just reality. And I, I have a kind of a paper memory and I have to write things down. And then once I have them down on paper in front of me, I, I can organize them and, you know, do something constructive with it. But even though I wrote the book, I need to refer back to it myself. And I go, wow, I wrote that. That sounds pretty good. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it does. I'll I'll verify, you know, it has the, the whole book has the ring of truth, right? Which is, of course, what helps people is when something feels true to them, then they can take in what you're trying to share, I think. Yeah, well, yeah, thanks. The book is packed full of wisdom, but I, again, I cannot take credit. I, as you know, I've, I interviewed 12 people and followed their trauma from the day of the initial shock and then followed their journey through everything. And the wisdom comes from these 12 folks that I, that I interviewed. And I, I learned, frankly, the book was very therapeutic for me to research and write. Uh, Maybe that was really the driving force behind writing it was was I was dealing with this whole, you know, Kilimanjaro uh, incident where I had the bejeebies uh, scared out of me with with going into the, um, you know, having a second heart surgery. And, uh, but it, it really helped me kind of process the whole thing. And now uh, through, I have a cardiologist who she's very holistic and she taught me how to meditate and, and get into these techniques that I describe in the book. Uh, and now I don't, I'm off all my meds. I'm off all the, all the high blood pressure stuff uh, and through holistic techniques, which I talk about in the book. 
that's that's not un, not uncommon i i am blanking his name at the minute a minute but a very very um very famous researcher about heart uh health uh believes that's kind of central to and it and it connects with this idea that i ran across that uh it's not stress that kills us it's it's um tightening up around stresses that 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 um you know closes our arteries and does all those those things that damage our health so i think that's all connected but i want to i want to say uh there's there's a piece of your book that i want to highlight a little bit because uh many people when they hear about my show think that i'm only i'm only interviewing people about someone who's died and uh that is not at all how how i look at it it's any grief and you you put together a quite good list i think of the possible directions grief can take uh so i just want to share that list and you call them difficult d's i wonder how hard you had to work to get them all to start with d but <laughs> <laughs> death disease disability drugs divorce despair depression deceit disaster destruction or dysfunction i think that i can't think of a of a loss that can't fold into one of those categories and i'm thinking you thought that through pretty carefully what the categories are of different kinds of losses and traumas that we experience. Yeah, I, I started making a list and the, and the first several of them, you know, started with D. And so I kind of, you know, uh, tried to, I don't know if fun's the right word, but, you know, kind of a catchy way of making the point that uh, I call them the difficult Ds. And, you know, I'm sure there are traumas out there that, that don't start with a D. But the real point is that there's, there's, all kinds of ways to be hit with trauma. But the, the real point of the book is that the solution for regardless of what it looks like in terms of the trauma, the solutions look very, very similar over and over again. I, I completely agree. Uh, my, one of my main teachers, uh, Stephen Levine, used to say that grief is the difference between the distance between what we wish for true and what's true. Um, and I haven't found an exception to that, uh, because even something like someone cuts you off on the road and you get angry, uh, that's that's a loss of the expectation you were going to get to the corner, you know, without without an event, <laughs> even if there's no wreck. It's a very tiny, minor loss of what you thought was going to be true. And then, of course, the things that clobber us are the things that we deeply and fully wish were true that aren't true. Like our home is, is decimated, our partner dies, whatever the huge ones are. And that's usually what gets people's attention, isn't it? Well, that's another brilliant comment. I'm, I'm literally here taking notes, thinking seriously, I got to add that to the next version. <laughs> <laughs> what a compliment. Thank you. <laughs> who, who said that again? Stephen Levine. Okay. I don't know uh, if, do you know who he uh, was? He's, he's dead now. I, uh, I know his name, but tell me. He uh, was a student of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and uh, an incredible poet and did a hotline for people with cancer for a very long time. And then he and his wife, Andrea, who is still living, she's 
uh, someone I love very dearly. Uh, they did workshops for years and years and years. He wrote quite a few books, Who Dies, Healing into Life and Death, um, several poetry books, a book of meditations. He's the person from whom <laughs> I learned to meditate. <laughs> so um, he's, he's definitely a powerful force in the world of grief and loss. Um, okay. Definitely, yeah. definitely worth checking him out. Um, and he, while my, my wife was sick, I was telling you before we came on about my wife's illness and death, we went to a lot of their workshops and became quite close to them. And I learned so, so, so much. Um, most of which uh, is familiar in your book. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. It, it's very compatible. Uh, we have a few more minutes before our first first break, and I just want to lay out the way that you that that you divide the book, and then when we get back, we can you know, quote unquote, dive in. That's the first section. <laughs> dive into uh, all these subjects, but you divide it into the dive stage, the survive stage, and the thrive stage. And I have to tell you that sometimes uh, when people talk about uh, grief, loss, trauma, as if there's a directionality. Um, it makes me nervous because then people think they should be a certain place at a certain time and it should go in a certain order and all that. But I appreciate in your book that there, it's an arc. I don't, I never felt that you were saying first you should do this and then you should do this. It was more like this is where people seem to go over time. Uh, and I think that bears out in in my experience of people experiencing trauma and loss. Yeah, it, you're you're right. the The term I use throughout the book, from beginning to end, is rinse and repeat. You know, you you get to some of these advanced stages of thriving, and then you can go and revisit the anger or revisit the depression and. And you know you feel like you're taking a step back, but that's that's not the case. That's just normal. And I try and normalize the the depression, the bargaining, the anger, the denial, the shock, because these are all normal processes when we go through grief and trauma. And sometimes, even though we're thriving, it's uh, we're really you know in a really good, healthy place after all this work. We'll revisit those stages, and and I, uh, I so I don't try and sugarcoat the whole topic. I try and stay real with it, and um, some of that's not really reflected in the academic literature, which I studied in in writing the book. But that's a big a big theme is that you're gonna rinse and repeat. You're gonna revisit these things, and that's okay. That's totally totally normal. That it's interesting because uh, I see it for myself anyway, just a tad different from that, which is that I wouldn't want to let go of any part of my experience. Um, for instance, uh, it will occasionally happen that I see someone ahead of me on a street that looks like my wife. Mm -hmm. And, and there's that kind of, oh, she's dead. You know, there, that feeling comes back. And for me, that's not a negative experience. It's just an experience that comes out of how much I loved her. Yeah. So to me, I never feel like I'm going backwards when that happens. I feel like I'm just having a moment where I, where I register again the, the profundity of having 
of her having died. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Does that make sense? Um, and, and I encounter this a lot with clients. That's kind of why I'm going into it here, because many people do feel like, oh, have I even made any progress when they have a moment that feels just as painful or just as big? And I agree, it doesn't work that way at all. Right. Yeah, that's that. I, I like the way you uh, kind of frame that. And I think that sounds very healthy. The uh, the, 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 the goal I'm after in the book is that, you know, trauma, unresolved trauma, uh, you know, causes these triggers, as I'm sure you know. And right. the idea, the goal is not to forget what happens. You're not going to ever forget your wife. You're never going to forget the, the deep. And, uh, and who would want of, to? Yeah. And, and you would, you, exactly. <laughs> you wouldn't want to, but, but in terms of the disabilitating, uh, depression and that kind of thing, or the triggers <laughs> where we, you know, react in ways that aren't healthy. Um, what I'm saying there is we want the, we want the memories to pass through our minds without, without being re-triggered. That's really the goal of my book is to have techniques so that when we're triggered over something, we don't, we don't go to a bad place. We can let, let these uh, negative experiences uh, pass not only harmlessly through our minds, but maybe in a, in a healthy, constructive way through our minds. I, I do a lot of uh, volunteer work in prison. It's up in San Quentin where California's death row is. And, you know, it's a serious, serious thing. The first time I ever meditated, uh, my teacher, I was sitting between two, um, convict, two gentlemen who were convicted of first degree murder. So, um, and I meditated with them for the very first time, which was the most surreal experience in my life. But oh, but I did. I don't want to. I don't want to speed through this because I have. I have so many thoughts and feelings about what you're saying. <laughs> so can we take a break and come back to it? Yeah, yeah, let's do that. All right. Listeners, you'll find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America. Like me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter and Instagram, all the rest of it. And to find Dr. Randall Bell, go to drbell.com. Be back soon. What sets apart VoiceAmerica.tv from the other video content providers on the internet? Choice and flexibility means that you can host your video content live or on demand on the main VoiceAmerica.tv channels through your own branded media player or your own private TV channel. We support multiple media formats, so all of your video content can be in one place. We offer a number of advertising and video packages. For more information, visit VoiceAmerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. Resiliency is the human capacity to lean into individual and collective strengths with compassion and grit when faced with the challenges of lived experience. Join host Elaine miller Karras for Resiliency Within, a program of hope and healing designed to inspire you to integrate wellness into your life, your family, and your community. In challenging times, you'll want to tune in every week. Resiliency Within can be heard every Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Be sure to like the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel on Facebook. You'll find great health tips from the experts. Find out more about your favorite shows and talk back to our team. Search Voice America Health or click the like button under the player today. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, 
Working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com slash goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com slash goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Dr. Randall Bell about his book, Post-Traumatic Thriving. And right before the break, and also during the break, we were just beginning to talk about your experiences working with people in prisons. And you mentioned San Quentin, which I'm very near. Uh, I pass it frequently. I'm in Oakland, and it's, it's uh, you know, on the way to Marin from my house. Uh, and I've also sung in that environment. And uh, I, I feel it's such an important subject to get out there. I've done several show, shows about um, the work to humanize prisons and uh, the people who are trying to, trying to do that work. And, uh, I, you know, maybe part of it is to say if people in prison and people who've been injured by people in prison can restore justice. <laughs> um, what? Why can't we? Right? If how? It kind of removes the idea we can't heal from horrible, horrible things because uh, most people think of those experiences on both ends as as the worst of the worst, don't they? Yeah. The 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 whole topic is so mind expanding and. You know, I was doing a radio interview, uh, I think it was last week, and uh, it was real time and there was somebody called in and was very critical of me of wasting time, you know, on these people that you, where we should lock up the lock them up and throw away the key. And I, I, my, I had to push back on that because these folks, whether you like it or not, they're going to most of the vast majority will be paroled. And the question is, with a question like that, is do you want them coming back into society with the same hard heart that they went into prison with? Or do you want them to have a turnaround moment in prison and be released where they don't ever want to harm another person again? And uh, so yes. this restorative uh, justice projects, uh, these projects are, are critically important, I think, in society. I, I think there's that that is true. And that's a convincing argument for people who are not moved by compassion in the area, <laughs> yeah. but but there's another level for me, which is that we we really do affect each other. We really are all connected, and um, if we don't know that after COVID, uh, you know, I am near San Quentin. Well, one thing that happened during COVID is um, the people in the prison were not well protected. A lot of them got sick then they had to be taken care of out in the community and other people caught it from them. Right. <laughs> and that was because there was no compassion. 
there was no sense of trying to protect the the um, people in the prison from contracting the illness. They did some pretty dumb things, actually. Um, and to me, that's just a great example. It matters to all of us that we all that we all have a path of redemption. We end up affecting each other, don't we? Yeah, we do. I mean, uh, I think the COVID thing, I. Gee, I, I mean, I having been through it, I hope nobody gets it, but it just seems like it spreads everywhere I, and prisons for obvious reasons. But yeah, well, there is a, con a connectivity. I love your argument better. You're right. My my argument is for those who are having a compassion problem, but but you're you're talking at a higher level, and I appreciate that. I don't know, maybe higher, just experiential for me. Yeah, but just watching how one person impacts another and how being in a society that that judges and never never gives a path it's one thing if no one ever redeems right <laughs> but it's another thing if people actually grow and change and and become better but they have no way back to to community uh that's that damages all of us i think yeah, I think you're right. And I think one of the most profound things I ever heard in prison was an inmate. I, we, were, we were taking a break and I was just out in the, that uh, prison courtyard, that concrete courtyard, when, right when you go through the big iron doors. And I was just kind of leaning against a planter, just taking it. We were just taking a break and an inmate came up to me and he said, uh, you know, for what I did, I, 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 just, I, I belong here. And he said the rest of my life, will be in prison. He had life without parole. But he said, you know what, it's going to be a good honorable life. And I thought that is profound, that even though you're, you've resigned yourself to this, this harsh reality of where the rest of your life is going to be, that you've dedicated it to, to being a good person. And moments like that uh, just make it all, all this effort worthwhile. It, it also, doesn't it make it Let's take someone like Nelson Mandela, who was who was falsely imprisoned, right? Sure. Unfairly imprisoned. But the same thing sort of happened to him, didn't it? That um, you, we live where we live. <laughs> and ultimately, uh, if it's in prison, uh, many people will figure out, okay, given that I'm here, what is my life going to look like? And that's what I notice in my guests as well. Given that this is the circumstance, it takes a long time to come to terms with the fact that what what is is. But once you do that, then the question becomes, what kind of life do I want to have? Yeah, and you can have a quality life regardless of where you are. And 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 that's another really surprising element when you go into the prisons and, and the vast majority do have uh, hope for being paroled one day. Um, and and it's it's really kind of magical uh, to see those transformations happen because most most inmates genuinely want to they they see inmates who had a change of heart and they want it. There's a long waiting list for inmates to get into these programs, and uh, you know, and they I I, I asked a, a blunt question, kind of the elephant in the room when I was in prison. I said, how do I how do we know that these folks aren't here just to kind of you know show something to the parole board and get out earlier? And they said. You know, these inmates can fool you as a as a volunteer, but they can't fool each, uh, us. They can't fool mm. the group. We we know what's going on, and when, and they do have genuine changes of heart. And if somebody um, doesn't really get it, 
oftentimes they're asked, they're excused from the group and they have to, again, wait four or five years to get back in um, and try again. But uh, it's very authentic. The changes you see really stick. And I have, I frankly have friends that were in San Quentin prison that I bring into my office and they, they do uh, executive training. They're very bright. I went to one inmate's um, uh, college graduation uh, after he was released from prison for murder. He uh, went back to earn his college degree. He just graduated with the honors and I just had breakfast with him and he's, uh, he's gets his master's degree in May and then he's going into a PhD program. This stuff really is profoundly effective. It's, it's, well, it's and amazing. I think you're, you're saying something else too, because um, why do people often choose crime? Because they don't see any advantage in, in choosing something else. They don't see a path forward where they can make money, have power, have agency. <laughs> you know, there are reasons people go that direction as well. And it, it is often smart people, actually. You know, we can call it a, um, a, a very ineffective choice, but nonetheless, given a certain circumstance, who knows what we would all do. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, you know, I think the thing is, uh, I'm thinking about uh, a man named Marvin Much. He was in, uh, he started Brothers Keepers in San Quentin. Um, I believe he was not guilty of the thing he was in prison for. Um, but he started that, which was a place for, for men in prison to um, kind of open up their emotional lives and heal together. Now he's out. He did eventually get released. And he welcomes whenever anyone leaves who he knew fr from that program, he, he welcomes them and helps them get started. He's done incredible work. So, you know, people... Uh, the impact people can have on each other, regardless of environment, is profound. You're you're right, and in the program I uh, I was uh, I'm involved with is called Vogue, and it's victims and offenders, and we meet not just with the inmates inside the prison, the offenders. We meet with the victims, and sometimes over the course of years, uh, a meeting is actually facilitated between the victim and the offender, and. Uh, it's just the most powerful spiritual experience you can have to see both sides sit down at the table and answer all those unanswered questions and have some level of reconciliation and some kind of healing. Uh, it's, it's, it, it brings tears to your eyes to see that, that magnitude of goodness happening in such a you know kind of an ugly place inside of a prison it's uh, absolutely i've yeah. i've done interviews with people who work together who were on opposite sides of of um a crime uh including murder who who work together to try to prevent young people from from heading the same direction uh it's really powerful work that was somewhat of a uh it's not a tangent. It's a, it's a, uh, a subset of what we're talking about, but I think it's powerful because it's something people don't even think is possible. They don't even understand often that that's possible, uh, that level of healing. Yes. 
Well, sure. It took me a long time to acclimate to, to the whole the whole thing. I was I grew up in Southern California, a tall, white, straight guy with a little bit of privilege, and um, and that's why I think I, I at this point in my life I'm kind of grateful for the congenital heart defect and the heart surgery because it it kind of put the you know uh, caused a crack to let the light kind of show you know get in there and mm-hmm. have a real transformation. Um, and just, you know, put aside old, um, ignorant prejudices and, and thinking and really get to a point where I could go in, I can go into a prison now and not be judgmental. And, and I can listen and I can sit in the fire. That's what we call it in San Quentin, sit in the fire, listen to these stories, which is just being there to listen, um, and, and not screaming and running out of the room in horror, um, it can bring a lot, a lot of healing. So, those are those are really the two premises of of healing in San Quentin is the sitting in the fire, uh, listening to the stories, and also meditation. Um, with those two tools alone, which I talk about extensively throughout the book, you you can bring a lot of uh, a lot of resolution and a lot of healing. I I heard a story once. I guess it was NPR maybe or some station of the like about uh, a program in a prison where every uh, everybody was taught meditation and the guards were very opposed, you know, <laughs> at first. But then all of the things that troubled them, you know, troubled their careers, like violence, aggression, um, you know, acting out, all that, it all went down. And at the end of the day, the guards were all for it. They wanted everyone to have it (laughs) because (laughs) their job got so much easier. So there are practical arguments. That's that's what we're talking about a bit. Um, Another another thing that uh, stood out in the book uh, that that kind of illuminated a bit is you you made a list of we're we're about ready for another break. So I'm just going to read this list and then we can talk about it after the break. But you made a list of possible traumas that we can encounter that I thought was really good. Situations outside of our control, such as acts of God, nature and natural disasters where there is no perpetrator. Malicious acts against us where a perpetrator victimizes us. Our own malicious acts where we've been the perpetrator and have victimized others, which I appreciate that you put on that list of traumas to us, right? (laughs) Um, Self-destructive behaviors where we've acted maliciously and harmed ourselves, acts of war, riots, or widespread civil unrest, and situations where we're not a victim, but we've witnessed the trauma of others. That's a that's a pretty great list, and we could put a lot of subsets into that. So when we get back from our break, let's let's dive into that a little bit more. Uh, listeners, you can go to my website, weatherandgrief.com, the Good Grief host page to find all my links. And to find Randall Bell, go to drbell.com. Back after the break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. 
Resiliency is the human capacity to lean into individual and collective strengths with compassion and grit when faced with the challenges of lived experience. Join host Elaine miller Karras for Resiliency Within, a program of hope and healing designed to inspire you to integrate wellness into your life, your family, and your community. In challenging times, you'll want to tune in every week. Resiliency Within can be heard every Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. When a woman is diagnosed with breast cancer, it's probably the most frightening thing that's ever happened to her. Friends and family often don't know what to do for support, not to mention the patient herself. That's where Breast Friends Cancer Support Network comes in. Your host is Michelle Beck, a two-time breast cancer survivor and advocate. She helps by providing inspiration, information, and most of all, hope. Tune in every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Dr. Randall Bell about his book, Post-Traumatic Thriving. And right before the break, Randall, I was, I was uh, reading that list of, of things that bring trauma into our lives, uh, which I appreciate because, of course, people um, minimize their own traumas. They compare, they... Um, they say, why am I so upset? It didn't happen to me um, in reference to being a witness. Uh, you know, there are all kinds of ways that we disqualify our traumas, big and small. And so I, I appreciate having a kind of thorough list of all the ways that we can get clobbered by life. Yeah, yeah it's kind of helpful to just kind of put things in perspective, uh, particularly when we get in the conversations about guilt versus shame, where we did something wrong, you know, with guilt and shame being, you know, feeling uh, ashamed of something that we shouldn't be. It's just, it's just, you know, the way it was or what happened to us. So having those conversations make a little more sense with, with lists like that. And it, it seems to me there's some level at which, you know, th- there's a, uh something I've been sharing a lot in workshops and such is, is kind of, we need to feel what we're feeling. We need to have solace and comfort. Some, someone needs to hear it. We need to find some inspiration that we can find our way through and we need to take actions. Right. (laughs) And um, your frame is different, but the direction's the same. Um, So I feel the beginning step is accepting that something has hurt us. Don't you? Uh, you can't. It's really, really hard to go forward in any way without accepting that it hurts. Yeah, I mean, my my ninth chapter is actually titled acceptance, and that's where you kind of get to that point of of taking a deep breath and saying, "Okay, this is my new normal. This is my new reality," and and getting there. But 
it, it, you know, just getting there, which is kind of in the survival stage, is is in and of itself a lot of work. A lot of work. Sometimes, sometimes the biggest work. Uh, I, you know, I don't want to get out of this third this third um, section of our interview without talking about the numerous examples of things that the people you talk about in your book, you and in general, the things people do to help themselves forward. And you have a phrase called the dynamic duo. Could you talk a little about that? Well, sure. I introduce it right in chapter one, because I, even though I, I really advise people don't, you know, to not skip ahead to the happier chapters of resilience and gratitude and connection and, and that, to, to really kind of process the whole thing. But at the same time, I want people to start healing from, from the first chapter. And I introduced the dynamic duo. We've talked about them. Well, the first one is, is sit in the fire, find a trusted person, find a good therapist like yourself. I'm not a therapist, but find one or a trusted friend who can listen and sit in the fire and, and really hear what you have to say. And, you know, I talk openly about my open heart surgery. Sometimes it's okay to talk about it publicly and sometimes it's not, but find a trusted person you can talk to, number one. And then in terms of the meditation, uh, it was the second week in San Quentin, we call it grounding because some people connect meditation with a religious practice. That's not really what we're talking about. Uh, we're talking about these deep breathing exercises. There's over a dozen studies from Sarah Lazar out of Harvard, where, you know, Buddhists have been meditating for thousands of years and science is basically kind of catching up to just how profoundly effective it is. It resets our neurological pathways. So it's simple, but it's very, very helpful. And those are the two big, big remedies for, for what we're talking about with trauma. Yeah, I know the Dalai Lama has actually funded and cultivated research on what changes in the brain in meditators. Um, and, uh, for instance, there's a man named Dan Siegel, who's an interpersonal neurobiologist who has ended up because of this experience of being exposed to meditation, doing a lot of work on, um, encouraging people to do whatever it is that brings them to that state. And I just want to put in a note that, um, that can become pretty integrated into your life, um, I I don't sit in practice every day, but I note what's happening in me and bring air into it numerous times every day, <laughs> you know, just in the course of the day. Um, and so there are lots of ways to reach that kind of state inside, aren't there? I just had a surgery a couple of weeks ago and I used that practice uh, 24 seven for a period of time. And I, I didn't really experience anxiety. I healed more quickly. Everything went better because of that. Well, yeah, I agree, Cheryl. And one thing you said there that really uh, was, was wonderful is that being self-aware, like I still work in the field of disaster economics. We just finished a staff meeting here in our boardroom where, you know, we're working on big cases, for example, Hurricane Harvey, um, you know, tens of thousands of our clients who had their homes flooded, which was, you know, very traumatic. And so I've become aware of my own physiology where my, I can feel my heart rate go up and I can feel my blood pressure go up. And those are the times where you just want to, you know, kind of take a break, take a few deep breaths 
and become aware of that and, and bring the blood pressure down through our breathing. This is having this awareness and these techniques are very, very effective. And I use them myself daily. I, I, that's an important note because I'm sure there are lots of people out there who work in the field and that's why they listen. And uh, I never under, underestimate the, um, the impact of compassion fatigue. And um, I, I'm very intent on not overwhelming myself. And I know what the signals are when I've taken too much in and let too little out. <laughs> so I'm sure that's familiar to you also. That's just such an important aspect of, of being exposed to other people's trauma, um, not just our own, huh? It was, uh, yes. And, and while our work is different, we're both being, dealing with, you know, traumatic situations. And, and I need to, for, speaking for myself, I need to make very deliberate decisions to offset that. You know, as we're speaking, I'm looking at the, you know, beautiful blue Pacific Ocean. That's very calming for me. Going down to the beach, very, again, very calming because while I do observe um, the, the traumas, you know, I got to take care of myself too and not overdo it because I, I, uh, I, I just don't want to go that route of all the illnesses that, that become, you know, come with the territory of not unresolved trauma, even other people. Not to trauma. mention the undermining of your joy in living. Well, yeah. <laughs> Which, you know, I mean, I guess I can accept a little shorter life, but I can't accept that. <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah, I want to yeah. have a, a life that I enjoy. But that's really relevant in my mind, though, to COVID, because many of the things I was doing before COVID, um, I couldn't do. And I had to also uh, adapt and come up with different things to do and buy a heater for the outside of my house. And, you know, <laughs> um, I couldn't, I couldn't visit my grandchildren. I couldn't uh, sing with my choir. I couldn't, you know, lots of things. <laughs> I'm sure you can make a list for yourself. So what do you think about that when we're actually uh, barred from things that we've come to rely on as our go-to restorative actions uh, what do you think is the best way to then come up with new ways to do it um, for yourself? How do you how do you do that? I'm sure you had to make some changes. Well, absolutely, and and as a, kind of circling back to to your kind introduction, is that the problem isn't the problem. COVID isn't the problem. The problem is how we react to it in terms of you know you know really where the rubber meets the road. My chapter eight is titled Exploration. I, what, and that's really kind of a fun part of trauma recovery is, is to really kind of get curious and try different things. I mean, in my book, I got examples of people. I have about a dozen people who I followed their journeys and, and they started exploring things that they'd always kind of daydreamed about and now they're realities. So kind of waking up and experimenting with what works and what doesn't work in terms of uh, the, whole, the whole thing is really kind of, you know, if you're going to call part of the process fun, that's, that's where it probably is. is, is. It probably is. I agree yeah. with that. I'm thinking too, you know, uh, that word resiliency that you use and I use sometimes, uh, I think is misunderstood. So let me see if you agree on this. Uh, people tend to talk about resiliency, like you're an oak and whatever hits you, you'll, you'll stay growing. Of course, in California, that's a little loaded because oak trees are endangered. But 
still, you know, you're strong like oak, you're resilient. I tend to think of it more willowy, like you can bend and you can you can adapt, you can move, you're not rigid. Um, what do you think about that? Well, I think we're saying the same thing. I, I use a different metaphor, you know, a basketball, you know, a, a ball that is uh, rigid isn't going to bounce. It's not going to bounce back, but you got a good basketball that, you know, or a tennis ball, whatever, you know, pick pick whatever ball you want. I mean, that's that's the characteristic where it's slammed down on the pavement and it has the ability to bounce back. I, I th- you need flexibility. I think we're flexibility. saying the same thing. Right. Yeah. I would... I would, um, I'll just confess, I would probably never think of a sports uh, metaphor. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, I I totally understand what you're saying. It just wouldn't come to my mind. (laughs) Be more more the tree's direction, I guess. But um, I guess that what I just want to end with in these last few minutes is how possible it is. And of course, uh, the people who study post-traumatic growth, put it at 60 to 90% of people after a trauma grow in some way. They, they, they say of themselves, I grew. Uh, that doesn't necessarily take away the trauma as we've talked about, but boy, I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade the growth, would you? Well, not at all. I mean, when I see a kid in a wheelchair today, uh, you know, there's always a tear I get in my eye because that was me. That was me at age 10. Uh, where, you know, I had to spend my summer in the hospital while the rest of my friends are at the beach. And I know what that kid's going through. I don't have to imagine it. And I'm kind of grateful that I have that, uh, you know, elevated level of empathy in that in that scenario that I don't think I would have ever had, you know, had I not gone through my own childhood trauma. And then don't you think it it does tend to lead to a more universal sense of compassion if you if you deal with your trauma. I've found that people who really have have taken a dive into their trauma uh, tend to have a greater compassion for lots of people in lots of different circumstances. They know what pain is, in other words. And um, you you can imagine yourself into another person's pain, even if it's not the same circumstance as yours often. Have you noticed that with the people that you that you have encountered in uh, in researching the book and in your your work with tragedy? Well, universally, yes. Empathy is such a wonderful human characteristic. We need more of it. We need we need to get off these polar extremes and dogmas uh, that we see all over the place and 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 look at other people's points of view from their perspective and find common middle ground because uh, it's there. I, I think that's the vast majority of people are like that. And the vast majority of people are able to bounce back from their traumas. Uh, but I wrote this book anyway, because some people don't and they need kind of a roadmap and other people can, but I'm trying to kind of help the process along uh, and make it uh, a little more efficient. So, but but that's what we're talking about is empathy. And also, uh, uh, yes, people can bounce back, but I think I think it's worth worth heading in the direction of of bouncing back better. <laughs> you know, yeah. how do we make something of our trauma? How do we use what happens to us because we can't get out of that? Things happen. How do we use it to to feed our lives, to make our our, our lives better? Uh, I think that's what we're talking about. 
I want to really thank you for being with us today. Uh, I've really enjoyed the conversation. Well, same here, Cheryl. And yeah, your point's well taken because we want to bounce back and thrive and, and tap into that fuel of that energy and Absolutely. do something you never would have done before. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, listeners, go to drbell.com to find out more and to, and to get the book. Next week, I'll have Leslie Streeter, author of Black Widow, A Sad, Funny Journey Through Grief for People Who Normally Avoid Books with Words Like Journey in the Title. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.